Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal recruiting and advisory services. I'm Mark Yakino, and I'm your host. I'm managing director in Major Lindsay's law firm and legal department advisory services practice. I'm pleased to say that we have a fantastic guest today. She's a deeply skilled lawyer and a passionate advocate for the well being of the legal profession. Libby Carreno is the co founder of the Humanized Lawyer Project. She is the co chair of the New York State Bar Association Committee on Attorney Well Being. She is a frequent and prolific speaker on attorney wellness, law firm culture, and the science of stress and the road to well-being. Libby, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself in your own words, because I probably didn't do justice. Oh, well, thank you so much for the introduction and the invitation to be here. Um, I have been uh, a practicing lawyer for almost 20 years, and for about half of that time, my passion has been amplifying the visibility of suffering in the profession. And I think many times it's a question that people ask me about how I got into this. And I think the most important thing I could share with anyone about me isn't so much something that you'd find on my resume, but rather that I suffered myself. I suffered um, from my first entry, my first job, um, which was riddled with uh, with behaviors that I now know to be uh, trauma producing. I saw people suffer with addiction issues, which I wrote about in the New York State Bar Journal. I uh, noticed uh, ever increasing rates of dissatisfaction in my colleagues. And it finally, there was a moment where I just decided the time had come to stand up and say something. I never thought all these years later, it would lead to this type of movement but I am so glad to be here. And I'm glad to have arrived having these conversations because when I first started, no one would talk about this with me. I read something very poignant in your um, background briefing that I did mm -hmm. in that you as a young lawyer sort of watched a colleague slip away. I did. And I did. That you knew intuitively he was slipping mm -hmm. and it was beginning to manifest itself and that was sort of a cataclysmic event for you because the decision after that happened was never to let it slip away again. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I, I was haunted by my silence. I was haunted by the fact that I could see I had been raised in a recovery household. I knew mm -hmm. better. I did not, I could not find my voice. I could not find a way to either approach my colleague or firm leadership to say, I think this person is struggling. I self-doubted along the way, my own observations, which by the way, in some ways is the hallmark of legal training, is to push down your inner knowing for uh, a, a, apparently a higher intelligence that may or may not exist. And I was suffering from that. I thought I didn't know better. Someone else should take care of this or, or whatever. And my colleague uh, ended up calling me um, from 
uh, from the county, the county jail um, with a very serious, uh, with very serious charges and has since, I must say, rebuilt his life um, entirely, which is fantastic, but did not go back to law. So I think it's, um, I think it's something where I felt as though, not that I had the power to change the situation, but it was more about why was my voice lost and how would I get it back? Um, and I have not had that experience since when I see something, I say something and I'm profoundly grateful to the lawyers. I even had someone contact me last week too, in fact, who said, I saw your presentation. I didn't know who else to call, but I felt like you'd understand, you know? And that there were ways to 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 assist that lawyer into services, into treatment, into peer-to-peer -peer support, depending upon what's needed. And I'm really grateful for that. So and I still, by the way, I still keep in contact with my colleague. That's amazing. <laughs> so there's, a, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on it sure. in, in what you just told me. And one is the fact that although we deal with clients and we're supposed to be trusted advisors we sort of counter program against our intuition. That's as if intuitive and visceral, um, visceral processing of emotions and circumstances are expected to be factored out for something that's supposedly better, but not empirically, it's proven to be better in my view. It is, yeah. So that's one of um, what Dr. O'Hare and I, who, who is my partner, uh, we talk about um, the dysfunctional myths upon which law is based and built and self-reinforcing. That's one of the myths that in fact, you are a better lawyer without emotions. We call that the systemic emotional amputation in our work. Um, the, the, the removal of emotional processing over time, either because it's based upon a belief that it's inherently unreliable or it's inconvenient, but either way, it is a dehumanizing and it's a less than human process. And we think we are supposed to be, I think as Aristotle said, free from passion. That makes our judgment cloudy. Um, and I think to its extreme, maybe that's true. We all have to learn to stay emotionally sober, you know, as, as, as it were, we can't fly off the handle, certainly. Um, but there's a difference and there is a, there's a middle path in, um, in being able to still stay in our emotions and have capacity for them and to be able to trust our intuition um, because at the end of the day, we are a service-based profession. We are in service to other humans who are going to have those feelings and experiences. And, um, and we do a terrible job as a profession, um, giving people the tools and resources they need to be in service with other humans. You know, starting with the Hazelden study and working forward to the ALM surveys and my sort of deep interest in men's mental health mm. and having spent 25 years in the law firm environment, to me, it's like the perfect cauldron of dysfunction, right? Because irrational concepts of what masculinity means kind of conversion overlay with these myths about what you have to do to be a good lawyer. And it sort of transcends into feeding the stigma that keeps you from getting help. So in many ways, I think the Hazleton study showed women participants had higher rates of anxiety 
male participants had higher rates of, rates of depression and substance abuse for exactly those reasons, those misreinforced already other false myths about what it means to be, you know, male, much less a male lawyer. Of course. I mean, the, the way that I've heard it best described is that, uh, you know, uh, anxiety is hypervigilance and depression is a frozen feeling or a frozen state. Now that's a very simplistic way of saying it. And I mean, nothing uh, empirical about that to anyone who, who knows better than me. I'm simply saying it as a visual to say that if you are, if you are, uh, uh, untrained in feelings. If you're trained to push them down, they get frozen. And if you're trained to always be on a high alert for any expression of emotions, then that leads into hypervigilance for, for women. So, or worrying or being found out or, you know, imposter syndrome or whatever the, the ideas of the things that women uh, by and large, not everyone suffer from. And so I think that there is uh, a lot to the law firm the current, because it wasn't always this way, but the current law firm paradigm um, that is really, really toxic. And it's not just the mental health aspect. It is in fact, the incentivization reward system. It is this idea that um, I had a group of lawyers ask me once, well, you know, Libby, you know, what is it that, what is it that, uh, that we're supposed to do? And I said, well, the first thing is you could, you could have a relationship with your own priorities, that's honest. So if you're keeping someone around because they're a rainmaker, be honest about that, but don't let them touch and harm others if they are in fact a toxic person who has a high turnover rate, who is expending form resources and trying to mitigate behaviors that are considered um, toxic. The other is that we reward lone wolves. And as I've said often in talks, um, you know, most of the time I hear managing partners say things like, well, I want a person, they usually say, I really want the guy I can throw into the deep end of the pool and can figure out how to swim himself out. That's the person I, I want, that highly resilient, uh, highly individual focused person. And the thing I always say to them is, you know, lone wolves are studied for their aberrance, for their psychological aberrance. They are unable to hunt with the others. They cannot be on a team. And yet, we, we, we laud that as if that inability to work on a team is, is the highest, as you said, um, model of leadership. And it's in fact the opposite. And we just have to start getting really honest about these things that there are people in our firms and in our relationships who create cracks requiring other people to be the glue. Yes. And, we, and we therefore pay the crack makers and we disincentivize the glue makers. I, and I couldn't think of a better analogy. And, and I think that it's absolutely true on so many levels yep. that the glue makers, because they don't necessarily adhere to or correlate to a easy metric that takes little to no intellectual thought to process um, are discounted and the organization suffers because the crack makers continue to be rewarded. Correct. And then, and, and we, and we, and we, it's actually a, a double whammy because the more they create cracks, the more the glue folks can't focus on the metrics that are measured because they're so busy repairing the interpersonal cracks and they're not recognized for that unbelievable talent. 
It's um, inherently it's inherently discriminatory. It is against those who actually care about the health of the organization and the development of their peers, because you're penalized for doing that. Correct. You're penalized for mentoring people. You're penalized penalized for the time you spent helping someone cope with someone whose behavior is toxic or selfish. Um, and it, it just sort of perpetuates the, the erroneous myth of that value is sort of a one-sided, narrow transom kind of thing. Well, value is, is commodity or is some right. type of widget. And, and, and if you read um, the work by uh, Professor uh, Jared Reich, they're, you know, capitalizing on the well-being of lawyers, he goes back through the history of law firm evolution. And it, and it actually used to be based upon mentorship and sort of the old guild model of professional development. And over the course of the last 40 years has been this commodification or this corporatization of, you know, law firms and, and lawyers in general of the profession um, with this belief that um, profits can ever go skyward. Um, on in an industry that is inherently based on time, which is a limited resource. So how do you how do you um, how do you do that without beginning to lose those pieces that made it professional and into a um, a commodity? And 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 every time that happens, we're going to see a an increasing dehumanization of lawyers. And by dehumanization, I mean treating lawyers like um, uh, like a part that fits in a car, as opposed to the creative, uh, multifaceted, uh, dynamic individuals that they are and the problems that they're facing. We, we so much want to, to uh, routinize things. We want to count their keystrokes. We want to count their eye movements. We want to see how much time they're sitting down versus standing up. Um, every part of their day has to be accounted for. These types of things that actually speak to the eroding of the humanity, um, not the increasing um, nature of it. And it will take a lot of redevelopment of, of skills and the breaking of myths, at least that's what we were doing at the Humanized Lawyer Project, is to, is to look at those things that we have gotten so far off course before it's too late. Because fiduciaries, which is you know obviously what we are, um, we are charged with a higher burden than 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 others uh, in corporate America, and and having a robotic having a robotic approach to how we practice law doesn't serve the public and it doesn't serve our ethics. No, it doesn't. And you know one of the things I think about sort of as a sports analogy is how many teams have gone out and bought all the best talent, mm-hmm. and they haven't succeeded because all these people are using used to being the talent, but how organizations that have figured out what roles they need to fill, what skill sets they need to fill, and it may not translate into big numbers, but as a team, they're durable and resilient and can adapt because not everybody's used to being the one. Yeah. And, and we don't look at law firms like a mosaic, or we don't look at a lot of organizations that provide legal services like a mosaic, right? Where, Right. You have equally valuable parts of the team that have different metrics because they are in different roles, but together you have a stronger organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that we also, as a profession, don't celebrate the ones who are getting it right. 
you know, we, we play towards these ranking systems uh, outside of ourselves uh, that rank law firms, the, the M law 100 or the whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and there's these, and, and what's the top ranking? It's, it's the profit generation annually. So, so profit per partner revenue per lawyer. Yeah. I mean, who cares? We're not even trying. Let's not even pretend we don't have a single metric other than that to rank firms, but there are firms out there who are doing it right. There are firms out there who are putting resources towards finding out what works. And many, many times when I'm asked to go speak in a law into a law firm, I decline because I, I, I don't believe in the one-off. I don't believe saying, Hey, we, we got this one program for you. We're addressing well-being. It's just not true. But there, I can say because of that, there are firms that are trying to address this from a value standpoint. They're trying to bring the, the value discussion of well-being out of the benefits department and into leadership, into the management structure, into the partnership agreements. You know, one suggestion I gave, it may sound, you know, it may sound um, off the wall, but we've got to start getting creative. I said, if you've got a partner who has, you know, 10 associates in two years, all with terrible exit interviews, what keeps you from going to them and saying, I may not have a clause in the partnership agreement that will allow me to oust you. But what we're going to do is we're going to hire a glue person in between you and your staff, and we're going to take it out of your budget because you're not allowed, you're not going to be allowed to deal with the, the essentially the staff anymore because we can't afford it as a firm. You know, we've got to start getting the courage to have conversations um, to call those things out, or we're going to continue to um, to reward, tolerate, or approve of behaviors that we know are toxic. I want to step back for just a second to, to, to what inspired all of this. When you decided you were going to be heard after your colleagues sort of slipped away for a while, how did you how did you operationalize that? How did you decide to be heard and then actually be heard? Because I think that's an interesting paradigm shift you made, but not always one that's that, that has a clear route to you know, well realization. It wasn't pretty. I mean, my journey wasn't pretty. I think um, there was a there was an expression I heard once. And I think it's. Uh, I think it's in St. Teresa of Avila's writings. She says, she describes something as the dark night of the soul. There's a moment where you can have sort of this awakening on a consciousness level or as an existential level, and then you have to catch up to it on earth time. And the difference between those two things is the time you'll spend in the dark night of the soul. So I had that for years, um, trying to understand what I could intuit, what I could feel, what I knew needed to be said, and then also finding the courage to break out of the group, because the risk to me was uh, no one will no one will hire me, no one will think I'm credible. I'll be cast out, which is of course a natural human fear uh, whenever we get into tribal dynamics, and to not be accepted as a member of the group or seen as legitimate. And I had to go through in a process within myself um, that took time. Um, to, to do my own inner self-work to get to a place where I could live and speak from the heart and the consequences, um, the consequences were going to be what they were going to be. But the more that I learned how to tell my truth without blame or judgment, the more I could stay in a place where the outcome 
wasn't up to me. And I didn't have to seek validation or approval or agreement from my colleagues. I just had to live as myself. And, um, and when I stopped looking outside of myself for head nods or approval, everything got easier. But I want to say that didn't happen overnight. I had to walk through, I had to walk through the soul searching and that took years. Uh, I think that that's, I always tell people that the day you get to hear and speak in your own voice, as opposed to trying to hear and speak in the voice that's imposed upon you, is something that takes years Does. to get comfortable with. Because you do have to get comfortable with um, not being sensitive to, you know, interpretations of your voice, right? That's right. I mean, there's there's great there's great writings. Actually, there's a TED talk online with Angelus Arian, who was a cross cultural anthropologist. Who's that? Angela. Angelus Arian. Angelus, like Los Angeles. A R R I E N. She was a cross cultural anthropologist, and in her TED talk, uh, she talks about uh, this concept in, in Central and South American tribes called original medicine. And they have this, because uh, she studied tribal dynamics all over the world. And one of the things that she found was that all of these cultures believed not only in individual fingerprints, but if we were to record the voices of every person in the room or everyone listening to us, everyone would have their own individual voice print or their own original sound or intonation. Everyone would have their own um, uh, coloration of their eyes. Everything that says that we we perceive the world, we touch the world in our own unique way, we see the world in our own unique way, and then we speak out medicine in our own original voice. And that many of those cultures do not even have a word for comparison because it wouldn't make sense. How could you compare original medicine to other original medicine? We each have a small piece of what the world needs to heal. That's a positively fascinating concept. Yeah. So if we're all speaking in our own voice, that's the only chance we've got. And if we are speaking in someone else's voice, then we are practicing outside of what we were originally here to do. So I think the challenge is to excavate your own original medicine and then give it out because everything else is imitation. And that's not what we were put here to do. I want to segue a little bit before we get to the Humanized Lawyer Project, uh, I think you've written or commented on the notion of mutual care versus self-care. Yeah. And I I don't, self-care we hear too much about, I think. Yeah. And and I I made a comment on LinkedIn the other day. It might've been actually a post by my friend, Michael Kasdan. Um, who who I I treasure. And the post was something along the fact that we've gotten so caught up in self-help book culture that we really don't know how to participate in the community because everything's been reduced to a 10-point plan for either a smaller belly, a happier life, more productivity, and you know, I think the self-care movement has hit his, and I practice a lot of self-care for sure, but I think the 
ability of self-care to trump institutional lack of care is a is an impossible task. Well, it is. And it's contrary to all of nature. Right. And so you you you've written and talked about a term, and I think it might have even showed up in your um bar association task force report. It did, yeah. The, the concept of mutual care and vicarious responsibility. And I'd like you to flush out those terms a little bit sure. because that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think so, important. Yeah. So one of the things that comes up in, over and over again of sur- surveys of lawyers, both, well, surveys and memes and, you know, because I got to tell you something, young associates are funny. Um, they post things out that crack me up all the time. They let me read them. But um, so, so kudos to their creativity. But in that is the truth that um, self-care once again places the burden back on the individual, that all of this would be okay if you were just taking care of yourself. And that's not to say that self-care is not important. In fact, it's critical, but it also allows the self-recrimination, this always facing inward, I must be the usual suspect. It has to be me. I could overcome this. Is this type of, of insulated self-view that doesn't take into the broader context of systemic, environmental, societal elements that bring that are brought to bear on the organism? And we know that, that nature itself is a closed system, that everything relates to everything else. And to study an organism outside of its of its elements would make no sense. You can't really take someone out. So we can't study ourselves just in parts. We can't have 300,000 practicing lawyers in New York state and study each one individually as their own, um, you know, their own self-care plan or program. We have an obligation, a collective obligation to also ensure mutual care so that it is a both and rather than an either or that we are- Good. And I, I sort of analogize it in this way, and it's an extreme, but we can't ask a single parent in an underserved community with no support and not enough social services to take care of themselves by practicing yoga and Correct. walking every day. That's right. 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 They have to get their kid to school. They have to get meals on the table. They have to figure out how to pay for it. They have to figure out how to help their kid with homework. It's an it's an inherently ridiculous ask. To say, right. oh, you should take an hour to do yoga. But well, look how fast, but look how fast lawyers will pick that up as a personal failing. Yeah. They will pick it up and they will take it because we are so overly responsible. We're some of the most responsible people that, that operate in our in our culture. Because and we're trained that we shouldn't need help. Yes. Yes. So we and we immediately, if something goes wrong, we call this in the, in the Humanized Lawyer Project, a, a, a dysfunctional locus of control, right? That's what it's called. But I must be at the center of everything. So while the, self, the self-help um, uh, you know, movement has kind of put us into a corner a little bit, it's amplified in law culture because number one, we don't seek out additional help. We do not look at mutual care. And frankly, you know, as I, I posted about this, um, that community is in fact immunity. When we, when we led, Dr. O'Hare and I led the uh, Lawyer to Lawyer Wellbeing Roundtable for 54 weeks during COVID, we, wore a, we, we, we ran a one hour drop-in confidential session that had lawyers as far away as Austria in it once a week. 
what we discovered was that over the course of 50 weeks or so, all the walls started to drop down and people shared and they talked and they said for the first time in 30 years, I did not know my colleagues suffered with these same things. I did not know that I wasn't the only one. So willing to pick up uh, the responsibility of everything going wrong and hold it all by ourselves. And yeah, we- you know, I, early on in my podcast, um, podcasting days here at MLA, one of my first guests was a uh, uh, clinical psychologist at the um, University of British Columbia, Dr. John Agrodnicek, who um, started an e-men's mental health thing. Mm. Um, and um, and I, can, I will send you the details afterwards. Please. But one of the things that they do from the outset is normalize depression, right? Yep. That it's not abnormal that what you're feeling, you're not an outlier, you're an inlier. And I, I think that that's the value of community it is. is you find so many people. One of the things about doing this podcast that's been positively life-affirming is people telling me their stories, me telling them my story and finding out that lots of people have compelling stories. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, and being able to hold each other's story. That's the other thing is like the ability to create psychologically safe space for our, for our fellows who uh, have things that they need to share. And when we are disconnected from our own selves, we can't possibly connect with another. That's where self-care and mutual care are intertwined. The more that we have lawyers connected with self who are humanized, who are open, who are, uh, who are oriented towards both self and others, that's where we can get into creating the kind of community that's safe for other people to come forward and do more sharing. And Dr. O'Hare and I saw that over the course of a year. Um, you know, it was um, it was a group that really had each other's each other's backs. They knew how to listen without advice giving. They knew how to talk without shaming. They knew how to stay focused on their story instead of everyone else's. And they started to really um, come to count on one another. And I think that that is something that our profession could do so much more of is creating those places where things that we suffer with are normalized. By having both internal communities as well as external communities. Absolutely. So so that you're not looking always outside the firm or your place of employment for that kind of support, but having it available in more than one location. Now, I think, would be a perfect segue to the Humanized Lawyer Project, which is obviously um, a very passionate um, endeavor for you and your um, partner, but it also seems like it's it's really an attempt to do some innovative things in a, in a systemic way. Yes. So we, the Humanized Lawyer Project is really the culmination of Dr. O'Hara and my work over the past 10 years. Um, we have uh, been working on this issue with lawyers uh, in, in New York State specifically uh, for, for quite some time. And we've had the benefit of, of podcasting. We've had the benefit of the Lawyer to Lawyer Wellbeing Roundtable. Um, I chaired the New York State Bar Association Task Force on Attorney Wellbeing, so the largest survey of lawyers uh, on this topic in our state ever. Um, and now I'm chairing with uh, Judge Peters, the uh, Committee on Attorney Wellbeing for New York State. 
And so in all of that time and in all of those discussions and all of those presentations, part of what Dr. O'Hara and I began to notice was patterning and trends. Uh, her, her experience is in groupthink. Um, she was trained at McLean Hospital at Harvard. And um, when we first started working on this, she was looking at some of the same patterns that happen within groupthink psychology and what happens with lawyers and looking at how- Can you just explain groupthink? Yeah. So groupthink, I describe it only personally. She's not here to describe it clinically. So I'll just tell you what it feels like to me is that you're in a fun house of mirrors and everything self-reflects back some type of discussion. And so we all, we start to, she calls it, we begin to abnormalize the normal and normalize the abnormal. We take on the thought processes of the group. That's right. And then it becomes becomes increasingly harder to break out of because the system is self-reinforcing. So it's usually grandma or an aunt or a child who says, hey, the way you're living, that doesn't seem normal. That doesn't seem right. It usually takes someone to break the group think. What the most powerful thing is uh, at all is to have a former member of the group begin to challenge the norms and to throw a rock at the mirrors and start to break them down a little bit. Like someone who breaks away from a cult almost. A little bit, a little bit. So, so there are aspects of law that are cult-like. I wouldn't call law a cult, but I would say that we've hit on some of them. Um, irrational, dysfunctional myths, um, belief systems that are destructive to the individual, but sustain the system to the individual's detriment. There are things, there are flavors of it. And so the introduction of the Humanized Lawyer Project was to take the patterning of uh we have identified traits that are trained into lawyers um, and the Humanized Lawyer Project focuses on 13 of them. And what we do um, in in the program and in the process is look at the change in a lawyer across a discrete um, scoring system from the beginning of the program until the end, looking to use uh, the best in behavioral therapy um, along with the group think of law in order to give lawyers retraining in how their brain works in some of these very discrete areas. So what are some of the types of behavioral therapy? So, well, the behavioral therapy is based in cognitive and dialectical behavioral therapy. Because that just went into, I thought so, but I think the audience probably might not know that. Dialectic or dichotomous thinking when you really break it down, just means extreme black and white thinking. It's either this or that, right? So when we look at lawyers, we look at their extremes and we tend to function in them. We are either, you know, it's either absolute control or total anarchy. It's either I work myself to death or I'm a lazy piece of crap. It's these these very strong dichotomous, um, and it's exhausting for both the body and the mind to move back and forth, but back and forth like that. And so there are some that are really unique to law and they happen over and over and over again. And people begin to recognize themselves um, in some of these traits. Whenever we go out and teach, we see a lot of head nodding um, when we start to tell stories about what dichotomous thinking looks like. And the goal of the Humanized Lawyer Project is to help the lawyer map what those extremes look like for that lawyer and how to find the way back to the middle so that we're not in these extremes 
of thinking because it's it's in the extremes that we reduce uh, we reduce our resiliency or we become more pessimistic, where our ability to to navigate reality becomes deeply um, uh, uh, automatic and can be very devastating. I was on the phone with a lawyer the other day who was telling me about a slip in judgment. That was how the conversation opened, the slip in judgment. I said, okay, I'm listening. You know, I'm listening because uh, this was uh, someone who was in distress. And I listened to the story and I listened to the story and, and I just couldn't find where, uh, where the panic was coming from. And it would became clear to me uh, a little ways in that he could not find the middle anymore between the, the error that had been made and the magnitude of the error that any mistake, any mistake, I should self-report, I should be disbarred. So in cognitive therapy terms, he was catastrophizing. He was catastrophizing, absolutely. And so, um, and being aware of how easily that happens to lawyers. Um, there's a story of a, of a lawyer in the UK who left a briefcase on the, on the two, on the, in the Metro and, um, and absolutely refused to go back to work and had very dire consequences, just could not imagine making that kind of mistake. And so we have um, a job to do when it comes to, you know, where we are responsible in our training of lawyers and into anticipatory anxiety and into some of these brain, um, uh, these uh, neural patterns that get ingrained over time. And they don't just stay at the office. Those neural patterns get with us into our car. They drive yep. home with us. They parent with us. You know, they address, they, they deal with our risk tolerance, our ability to seek consensus with our partners, uh, our home partners, I mean to say. So this is the type of thing where if we don't get a handle on how to turn some of these skills on or off, like for example, anticipatory anxiety, we need that for our, for our profession. We are trained to run the maze of possible terrible outcomes for our client and then protect them against all of them, right? But we actually ran the maze. We think ahead. We think of all the things that could go wrong. But if we don't learn to, to turn that skill off inside of our brain, how in the world would we ever um, not apply, begin to apply that everywhere? And over a course of decades, think about the neural patterning. Dr. O'Hara describes it like ruts in the road. Every year they get deeper and they get deeper and they get deeper. And, and and you can, in practical terms, you can see like, how are you going to let your kid explore and grow when you're, you know, continually preparing for the worst, right? But we know for kids to become Correct. fully functional adults, they have to make mistakes. They have, they have to, to be doled out independence and there has to be some threshold for risk, That's um, right. responsible threshold for risk, but sometimes that gets programmed out. Now, one question I have when I when I was going through the Humanized Lawyer Project materials is, who did you gear this for? Was it to change the, the thinking of leaders? Was it to help lawyers who felt they were in distress? Was it a mixture of both? I think it's a, it's a mixture of both. Um, but I think ideally, uh, how I describe it is, um, those people who can hear the music playing, no matter how faintly, because for a certain segment of lawyers, they will tell me nothing's wrong. I'm fine. This is fine. But then there's a segment of lawyers who say, you know, 
I have this feeling inside that something's not right and that we could be doing something more um, for ourselves, both as both for myself as an individual, as a colleague, and potentially as a leader. So what I say to people is I only want to work with the lawyers who can hear the music, even if it's up a hill and they can hear it coming from the bandstand. Um, those are the people who are going to be drawn to looking at doing things a different way, who are going to look at saying perhaps there is skill development um, that would assist me. So I think of it as um, our lawyers who are going to ascend into positions of leadership who do not want to do things the same way um, and who really do believe that being able to normalize some of our behaviors and, and have skills to combat them um, for our own health and well-being and our systemic uh, stability are the people that I think will be drawn to this program and the lawyers that we're working with already. Um, I'm not here to, to uh, proselytize to lawyers who, who, who don't think there's anything wrong. That's an entirely okay position to take. But for anyone who's out there who's curious about how we're actually going to skill develop towards change, this is our first step. Because I can tell you right now, after being 10 years in this, there's not a lot out there for us. No, um, there's not. And, and, we're, and even if half of this, because uh, we're going through beta right now, trying to get the change scores and the data, um, and hopefully um, be able to, uh, to test our own hypothesis, um, even if we get some of it right, we're farther ahead than we've been. And I believe there's great dignity in mistake making. They used to call that innovation. And so being willing to try something um, and, and be willing to take the feedback and keep myself and Dr. O'Hare in an iterative process, I think is, um, it's humbling and it's good work, but I think it'll propel us and others further than we've been. Well, Libby, thank you for taking the time with me. This has been a great conversation. I very much look forward to tracking the progress of the human humanized lawyer project and seeing what you do and, and what, what data you develop, because I think it's fabulous. And I do like the whole concept of being there for people who hear, who, who have their ear to the train tracks, yes. as opposed to trying to convert people who are just inherently not inclined. It's a tribe thing, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's, 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 if this resonates with you, you're in the right place. If it doesn't, that's okay. So that's, that's kind of how we approach it. And hopefully with the data, be able to fine tune it. So before, before we go, can you share how our listeners might get a hold of you or, or get, get a feel for the Humanized Lawyer Project? Sure. Our, uh, the Humanized Lawyer Project is actually being done in conjunction with Village Medicine Seattle. Uh, they're at, because it is in fact, um, clinic-based, so it has uh, HIPAA compliance um, uh, components as well. So they're our, part, our medical partner on this one. And so that's, um, and I don't have their website, excuse me, but it's um, Village Medicine Seattle. If you're interested in the Humanized Lawyer Project for the next beta round, you can put your uh, email contact information in and go into the, um, uh, the list so that when the next beta group opens, um, it, will, uh, it will generate an email. Washington State has uh, officially uh, issued CLE credit for the Humanized Lawyer Project, which is fantastic. 
And we have two other states that we're working on uh, right now as well. So to open beta groups there, um, to open for, for them to also be able to receive CLE credit. So keep your eyes open. And, um, but if you're interested, definitely. Uh, and we'll work with whatever state to try to get it certified. Yeah, and I was on their website yesterday, and it looks like it's got a lot of holistic elements to how it approaches health. Yeah, um, so we yeah, so there's also the holistic side of um, both behavioral and and, um, and physical health at Village that I think is also important as we look at the whole lawyer, um, as opposed to simply um, aspects of our job. So that was the idea. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.